My father was a career criminal, um, you know, in, in the 60s and 70s and all that sort of thing, like the, the, the Cray twins and the Richardsons and, you know, all them sort of people. That was these sort of the great train robbers. Right. There was all these friends. They were... The following podcast is a Carolina Boys production. Welcome back, everyone, to Crime and Entertainment. I'm your host, Hollywood Wade. Now, we hope everybody enjoyed last week's episode with counterfeiter Jeff Turner and a laugh episode like crazy on Wednesday with OCD author Jim Bailey. That was a quite a fun episode that we did only on the YouTubes too, folks. So if you're a subscriber here on the audio side of things, go check out that interview with Jim Bailey on the YouTubes. And Jeff Turner, what a fantastic story he had, famous counterfeiter. Uh, movie actually option for his life so let's be on the lookout for that that'll be very cool to have a movie uh done about his life and his experiences and to know that we had an interview with him you know before all that took place but this week we have a first time guest and we're going way 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 to the other side of the pond ladies and gentlemen we've got former drug smuggler michael emmett on the show you know michael has a very interesting story you know growing up he wanted a father in his father's footsteps who was you know a real big time gangster as you heard in that little clip in the opener there and you know he did and at the age 18 he got through into that business and you know started smuggling drugs along with his father i mean there was lifestyles of violence uh sex you know you name it he was involved in it Later on, he would actually get busted with his father doing a smuggling operation. And believe it or not, they would land in prison together. And, you know, the the come home story here is that while he was in prison, he discovered, you know, a love for faith and a love for Christ. And, you know, he turned his life around and he's got a very inspirational story here. And I think our listeners are really going to dig it. And let's not waste any time, folks. Let's get right into it here on crime and entertainment with one of London's biggest drug smugglers ever, Mr. Michael Emmett on crime and entertainment. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome back to crime and entertainment. We have a first time guest here coming to us from the UK. Please welcome to the show, Michael Emmett. Michael, how you doing, my friend? I'm I'm doing well. Thank you. How are you? Man, I can't complain. If I did, nobody would listen anyway. (laughs) (laughs) Now, yeah. look, I stumbled across your story looking at a buddy of mine's podcast. And I thought to myself, you know, I need to have that guy on the show because you got a really interesting story. You were brought up kind of into, you know, this life, this life of crime. You know, you did have to go to jail. You did serve some time, but you've made that transition, you know, away from that. You know, now you're living in a, a life of faith. You're, you got your faith is very strong. Uh, you wrote a book about it. Uh, so I think that it's something our listeners, you know, would really enjoy hearing, uh, your story. So if you don't mind, man, I'd like to, to get in that here today and, you know, being this your first time on the show, just kind of start from the beginning. Tell us a little bit about, you know, how you grew up, because I know your father was a major part in, you know, your path in life in earlier years. Correct. 
I suppose I, I was born in a in London. Uh, my father was a career criminal, um, you know, in, in the sixties and seventies and all that sort of thing, like the, the the Cray twins and the Richardsons and you know all them sort of people. That was the sort of the great train robbers. Right. There was all these friends. They were sort of war children. They all grew up together in the boxing and snooker halls. And, you know, they, they there was bad poverty about after the Second World War. And, and I suppose, you know, they, they used to steal for their food and and, and the boxing gyms. And, and all of a sudden, you know, the, the, the fraternity of people, um, a lot of them turned to crime. And my dad was one of them. Um, and, you know, he was a big, he was a funny man, my dad. He was a very, he took his crime life very serious. You know, he was he was his, his security was was proper. You know, he, he had a lot of respect. He he was a tough man as well. He, he Irish descent. Um, you know, he was a small stocky guy. He he was notorious for sort of, and I'm not trying to glorify it, but you know, they say he could have a good fight, sort of thing. And um, you know, he was his own man. My dad. He was a very very strong man physically, but emotionally he was he, he he was a bit of a wuss emotionally. And I picked those traits up. But we was born in the council flats uh, back in South East London. I was born there in 1958. My mother was a very special lady. She was an opposite to my father. Uh, and she was the backbone of the family. Um, we was brought up in the, in the council flats. Uh, and then my father had been married four times. My mother was his second wife. And he decided to make better or try to make better for us. And he took us down to Surrey when we was quite young. He put us through good schooling. Uh, my sister and my younger brother, they they sort of they they excelled. They loved it. They're very bright. My dad was very bright, and you know, very academically bright. And I wasn't. I, I was. I was this sort of. I was a bit of a disturbed kid actually, and and, and I I sort of was always on my mother's leg. I was always a little bit. I was a funny kid, and. Uh, and then I sort of went to this school in Surrey, which was a good school. We had to raise our cap to the Edmars. I, I excelled at sport, but it was always I was always at disease with myself. There was always, hence the name of the book, it's called Sins of Fathers. Mm-hmm. And I believe it's the ancestral sin that's passed down. I, I firmly believe that. Uh, my grandfather, he was Irish. Sadly, he committed suicide. So there was that madness in there. You know, there was a it was madness. My mother's family were sort of old-fashioned, we call them costermongers. They used to sell flowers and fruit and veg and, you know, they used to have a piano in the house and all be singing. And it was a jolly lot and there was a lot of them. Um, and that side of the family was, it was like the yin and yang of Michael, you know, that piece I had and then, and then there was the madness. I started getting in trouble when I was about 11 to my dad's dismay. He wasn't too happy about it. I started stealing. I started fighting. I started getting in trouble with the police. Um, and I went through my teenagers, you know, not a happy kid, actually. Uh, I started using drugs at a very early age. And I, and I think things like that sort of got him down. I was getting in trouble. And as much as he was this criminal, he didn't want me to be. What type of drugs were you using at that age? Well, I started using uh, cannabis. Um, I I started drinking early days when I was about 12 or 13. There was always booze in my... My dad used to be a club owner, uh, you know, like a drinking club, like a men's club, you know, Um, where all the villains used to meet and they used to play cards and have a drink and and all things like that. And, And then I progressed. I started using a lot of cocaine. 
Um, and because of the industry that we was in, I used to get it for sort of, I never used to pay for it. Uh, and so I was always constantly, you know, sort of taking cocaine, drinking and, and, and puffing cannabis. So easily, uh, those kind of things were easily accessible to you, I guess, growing up, you know, with your father. Um, what about, uh, brothers and sisters? Yes. You had a brother, right? Yeah, I've got, I had a, well, there was, it was seven of us. There was, um, there was, uh, uh, four boys and there was three girls and uh, sadly two of my brothers died my my half brother uh and my own brother died very tragically uh but i do still have a remaining brother he was my dad's eldest son he, he's named after my dad brian he went to prison for 10 years he was an armed robber i think i heard one of the stories on some pod, uh, podcast that you told wasn't it when i'm involved in like a pretty horrible accident like a car accident yeah that was my brother martin i was um I'd got in trouble with the police in London. I was in this car chase with these cops and there was sort of cocaine around. And um, the guy I was with, he was wanted for, for, for sort of a, a shooting away at an armed weapon. And he was a bit of a violent chap. He was a good, nice man, the kid. He died just about five years ago. And we was in this car chase. Um, I got arrested. They couldn't find the, uh, the the drugs at the time. And my father went to judging chambers, got me out. I was in a wheelchair and I absconded. And back in the day, in the 80s, everyone used to go to southern Spain because there was no extradition, extradition there. Yeah. So I went down to southern Spain. I was being a naughty boy with, you know, the likes of the notorious Freddie Foreman was there. You know, all them sort of, sort of London faces, villains. And so I, I, there was a helping hand for me there and people, so you, you know, I mean, I didn't get involved with crime with any of them, but they sort of helped me along the way. And I started doing little bits and pieces myself, you know, around cannabis. My brother, who was a, my younger brother, he was a, he was a real sweetheart. He was, a, he, 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 he was a sort of guy you'd want to be around. He was nonviolent. He was funny. He was bright. He was very kind. Uh, and he'd come down there because my mother's father was dying of cancer and he wanted to be with me while I was in Spain, while my grandfather died. I was very close to my grandfather. And very sadly, we was using cocaine one night. It wasn't a drug that he used to take. We had words because my dad was uh, sort of leaving my mum and he'd met another woman. And it was, a little, it was a little bit frosty. And we had words. We never used to argue, me and this kid. And I gave him the car. He went to Malaga Airport and uh, he couldn't get on a flight. And sadly, on the way back, he, he lost control of the car uh, and he went underneath a lorry and, and sadly, it killed him stone dead. Ooh. Wow, that's, yeah. that's a bad way to go. Um, yeah, tragedy. Yeah. Now, let me ask you this. So kind of when you started getting older up in age, was it was it more or less kind of the drug trade that you were in or what other kind of, you know, things were you guys into to make money at that time? Did you have any sort of rackets going or, you know, extortion, shakedowns? Uh, Well, my my father was always sort of involved with um, sort of criminal activities. You know, there was a, there was a thing they used to call them a long firm where you used to get, you, 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 you buy loads that we wouldn't pay for it. You'd like buy loads of this sort of stuff, whether it was, it was, it was mainly like sort of cosmetics and things like that. Uh, and then they used to fake the paperwork and they used to steal it. And, uh-huh. and there was all sorts of things going on there. You know, they used to blow safe when they were younger. But when I started out on my criminal life, I, I started um, being involved with antique furniture, uh, you know, stolen antique furniture. Uh, and that was the first sort of thing that I started to do. But then my dad, 
uh, it was a notorious uh, London man as well, named a guy called Joe Pyle, who, 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 who was my dad's partner. Uh, and, and they got a sort of, in fact, they used to go out to America and um, they got heavily involved in the cannabis trade. Mm. So around about 21, uh, I started getting involved with, with with that sort of enterprise. And, you know, it was a very lucrative sort of situation. And it wasn't really known back in the day. I mean, you're going back 40 odd years. Um, you know, you didn't have the police surveillances that they've got today. Right. It was organised crime. And, and and they were very professional, organized criminals. And um, I got on the tail end of that. Man, you wouldn't. Some of the people that I've talked to, you know, throughout my time doing this, you know, and I think I've even heard you kind of mention this, you know, in, in podcasts that you talked about is, you know, some of these guys, you know, they might be classified as criminals from the law, but they're brilliant with the ways they come up with to move stuff and, you know, you yeah. know, move this pot and move this, you know, Coke or whatever it is they might be trying to smuggle. I mean, you know, it takes a smart man to come up with that. I mean, a lot of people say, you know, if guys like that put that, you know, those thoughts to doing something legitimate, they would probably be very successful. But I think the Absolutely. lure of, you know, this lifestyle probably is just a little too much for people with certain characteristics to, to withstand. Yeah. But yeah, you're, you're absolutely right on that, man. It takes a brilliant mind to, to get away with some of this stuff, especially you're talking about moving tons of, you know, pot or weed or coke or whatever. That's not just something you can just ride by with it sitting on the back of your boat, like a, a thing of fish. No. You got to put some, no. some creativity into moving this. What was some of the ways that you guys would move it to try to be unte- undetectable by the police force? Well, early days, I mean, it wasn't my, it was what they was doing, but you know, they, they had a smuggling route. You know, they used to come over. It used to come over from sort of Holland and, and Morocco and places like that. Uh, you know, they used to have concealed lorries. They used to have all sorts of things, boats. Um, you know, it was very organised, and it would, and it would, it would arrive in London. And the same organisation used to take place here in London. You know, very trusted men. Um, you know, because it, it was a lot of money. You know, uh, and, and the smuggling routes. Uh, and then in the UK, it would be hit away. It would be sold. It, you know, they, everything was done very, very professionally. Right. And, you know, I, I suppose when I look at the world today, and, and, and I'm not, don't want to get political, but, you know, the world is very corrupt. We just happened. We don't, you know, they, they do it legally. You yeah. know, the things that they get up to, governments, you know, the, the rackets that go on there. Uh, and it's just like a game. Uh, and it's, you know, you've got to outwit them. But I, I think with the influence of like sort of Joe Pyle, I don't know if you've ever heard of Joe. I have. He he was very, you know, my dad and him, they used to go out and they used to meet the families out there. Uh, and they had a lot of respect. I remember when they used to have a night, uh, they used to have a gambling club in Curzon Street called the Steering Wheel Club. And uh, it was a gambling, it was all American. Uh, and it was the, it was that, it was the five family mob out there who, who had people over here. And I used to love going in there. It was all illegal gambling. And, you know, it was fantastic. And, uh, you know, I used to get them bits and pieces, what they used to want. And, and so, you know, I was brought up around it. Uh, and it was really funny because the influences that my dad had and Joe had uh, and, and people like that, you know, their hands stretched across the oceans. And, and and some of the things that they used to get up to, you know, I've heard them, you know, they had stuff coming through at the airports, you know, all sorts, of, anywhere where there was a will, there was a way. Correct, yeah. Um, and, and, and then this sort of money used to be had to be moved about. And, you know, so it was all very, very organised. And the security was spot on. Mm-hmm. 
Now, one thing I wanted to get back to real quick, you know, you were talking about the antique furniture. Now, was this like passing stuff off counter or just stealing antique furniture and reselling? What was that racket? Well, there was, um, I, I knew some guys who used to go around London and, and a lot of the sort of, uh, the, the, they, you know, the bigger houses in, in, in the city and in the, well, not so much the city, the West End and, and, and Sloan Square and Chelsea and places like that. They were community, they were, they were flats, you know, they were beautiful flats sort of apartments. Right. Yeah. Um, and, and because of the wealth of the property, where they used to leave the letters in the hallway, there was always really, really, you know, expensive furniture. And and so, you know, some of the things I've heard that they used to pretend to be, you know, intercoms, they'd be they'd pretend to be intercom engineers and they'd be playing about the door would open. Uh, and, you know, they went in there like they, you know, they was allowed to. Some people used to dress up as removal men. But the amount of stuff that was in the hallways um, in, in central London, in places like Harley Street, you know, it comes to a lot of money. So I got involved. And, you know, I played my part uh, and then I, I got involved with selling it. I got arrested for it, uh, for, for handling stolen goods. But it was a very interesting game. Um, you know, you learned a lot. But ever, as a young man, when I was working with my father, because I used to sell commercial vehicles, you know, we used to have stolen logbooks and that that's to, the logbook or, or, or an MOT, which uh, made the car roadworthy. There was all shenanigans going on, you know, uh, sort of stolen cars, what used to get rung, you know, they'd get changed and identified as a, as a straight car. Right. So I used to watch all of that, you know, I used to see all of that sort of going on around my dad and, and, and a colleague of his. So it was always crime. It was always sort of serious crimes going on. And like I say, when I was younger, they were they were stealing safes and blowing safes. And, you know, they, and they owned clubs, they owned all sorts of things. But it, it was, you know, it was all a, all a racket. You know? Yeah, so if there was a way to make a dollar, they had their hands on it some way or another. Absolutely. Yeah. Uh, they not what you know, it's who, it's, it's who you know. I think the influences of, of the, the criminal underworld, Absolutely. I'm not sure about today, but they call it the old school. Yeah. You know, that, that old school for like, look at the great train robbers, mm-hmm. you know, I mean, I mean, I know lots about crime. I, 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 you know, some people are still alive, so I can't say too much, right. but you know, there's, there's things about prison breaks. There's, there's loads of stuff that, that used to go on that I used to hear about because of uh, the influence of my dad. Right. And that's something that I've talked about this on some of my previous podcasts, but you know, over here, a lot of the, the mafia families, you know, their biggest rackets, their biggest money makers throughout the years was, you know, gambling, um, of course, narcotics, uh, sports betting, things like that. All things now that are legal. Um, you know, you have yeah. draft Kings and FanDuel where you can make your sports bets. Uh, yeah. most weeds, I think legal now in most places are, are about to be, they have CBD stores. They have those cash advance places where when you go to get in loans, you're paying 30% on your money. I don't even think the yeah. mob guys charge that much. Maybe it's like 20 or 25, <laughs> but all those things, like you said, is the corruption now more or less by and large is coming from the government because they got to get their piece of it. They, they seen, they said, Absolutely. Oh, these guys are making all this money doing this. We should be doing that. So that's, Absolutely. they're the biggest mob of them all to be quite frank. Absolutely. 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 It's, yeah. it's, it's all a racket, but you know, like my dad years ago, 
he had betting offices like they were where you used to go and have a bet. It was illegal. Yeah. You know, there used to be a thing called, um, it was called Shemi. It was a, it was a crooked guard game. And it was a Ben card game where they would have a lot of people at the table. My dad's partner, a lovely man called Bob. He used to be involved with a notorious gangster called Billy Hill. Uh, and they used to have illegal uh, card games. I wouldn't be telling you, but it's in his book. Uh, and they'd have, uh, you know, it, it, it was they would have a shoe where the cards used to go. And they'd have five, pe- five people sitting at the table. And the cards, they'd only play with fresh packs. But it was all sealed, the packs. But they'd be made in France, in Paris. Uh, and they would always... They had about seven or eight cards in there that would have a, a little mark on them so they knew what they was having. There'd be two people sitting at the table who was also in the in the sting. Uh, and they used to draw people in, you know, quite, but, you know, there was a, the Lord Lucans who went missing. Um, you know, there was some real famous people, um, sort of that blue blood, who used to love the illegal gambling dens and they used to take thousands. You know, you used to have proper, I'm talking about in the 60s, yeah. where, you know, he earning colossal amount of money, and uh, Bobby McHugh, he was he was a good friend of my father's. Um, you know, he was mates with the uh, very famous actors, uh, the Richard Harris's of the world, and and you know he's very affluent. He had a nightclub in Chelsea, so it was always there was a bit of class about him as well. There wasn't thugs, yeah. you know. They used to like the women. They used to like the business. You know, their claim to fame. Bobby's claim to fame was. You know, he, he he defrauded the Swiss government. Um, he, he made the Swiss, the, 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 he, he counterfeited the Swiss money uh, and it, it nearly brought them to their knees. Um, right. They say that the the, the, uh, the plate that he made for the Swiss money is now in the Black Museum. So, you know, it, it, was, it was proper old um, criminal activities. Right. And I think that's more or less when, when what you talked about earlier. That's That's what I consider old school. You know, guys that they knew how to make a dollar, you know, it wasn't so much about the violence. You know, you only had that violence when you needed it. Other than that, it was, you know, it was more about making the money and enjoying yourself. Absolutely. I mean, they, I mean, we used to have great times at the races, you know, the horse racing. Uh, you know, my dad and Joe used to have, they were owners of a horse called Betty Knowles. It was all crooked. Right. You know, the trainer was crooked. There'd all be sorts of things going on, you know, where, <laughs> bets going on, crooked bets going on and, you know, and it was always, well, I think in the criminal life it's always yin and yang, you know, one minute you're up there, next minute you're down. Yeah. There's no free lunches and I think back in the day, you know, the the, the sort of guys who were sort of doing what they was doing was very well known to the police but I think that they were sort of, you know, you didn't have the technology today and the old school, they never used to hurt women or kids or, or no one used to rob of steal off each other. Right. You know, you could trust the thief years ago. You yeah. really could. You can't now for sure. There's there's now that saying is definitely true. There is no honor amongst thieves or criminals right. or anybody nowadays. I mean, you no. know, people there's more turncoats and, and people that tell them people now than I think probably definitely ever before. Absolutely. I you know, I I mean I, I don't know a lot about it. I, I sometimes look at the the sky news and, and, and see things that was going on and but you know it, it's not like it was it's it's yeah and i believe that it goes on it, it, i think the sort of um criminal the the, the, the the black money let's call it in today's societies worldwide i think is colossal amount of money and i think i'm not being funny i'm not speaking out of school here but i think that they let a lot of it go on anyway because oh, yeah. they need the black money on the streets you know there's a lot yeah. of it 
Yeah, I'm talking about worldwide, you know? Yeah, I mean, it keeps the circulation going to a certain extent. It keeps people in trouble. It keeps the prisons full. I mean, all of it's a big circular game. Like you said, it's all a big game to to feed the pockets of the higher-ups. So at what point in your criminal career, like, you know, obviously you started off, you know, a little bit, you know, lower scale stuff, but when did it kind of amp up? Like when was your first like major deal when you were like, man, I'm making some serious money here. Well, I suppose, I suppose what had happened after my brother died, I, um, I I became very depressed. Um, I, I, I started seeing, I had an affair with this beautiful lady, uh, which was wrong because I was married and, and I had a few children. But I, I, I think my, my brother dying was was a wound that I really couldn't get over. Mm-hmm. And I'm a recovering alcoholic, so I had all the attributes of an addict. Um, you know, I'd seen a lot of things. I was at the, um, I was at the uh, the the there was a killing in London, in court in the yacht club, uh, and I was only about eighteen or nineteen, and I was there. Uh, and, and so I had this thing going on and, 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 and Martin died and I, I just didn't feel good about me. So I turned to drugs uh, and had this affair and, and, and then stopped. I, I sort of had a bit of a breakdown. I thought, what am I doing? So I sort of got a little bit quieter and I'd been involved with a, a few little things, you know, serving uh, small amounts of drugs and all that. And then my dad and Joe... Uh, they got arrested, I think, in 1988, and um, uh, it's, it's fortunate for them. They, 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 they allegedly they weren't guilty. It was a, it was a, uh, a large amount of cannabis, and they come out, and, and the police. You know, I read a thing the other day about my dad and Joe, um, a criminal intelligence report that they was eye on the list for many, many years as, as targets. So they must have been clever to get away with it, <laughs> but. Um, they came out of prison and they was on bail. They was category A prisoners, security prisoners. They both come home and they was told, behave yourself, you know, your time's up sort of thing. So Joe went his way. And uh, I think they fitted up fitted up Joe with a couple of kilo of heroin. It was out of order. They fitted him up, actually fitted him up. Uh, and he went and got 14 years. And my dad said to me, do you want to go back to work? So we did. Uh, and we, we went out to southern Spain. I'm, I can only tell you this because I got arrested for it. Uh, we went out to southern Spain and um, we started to go and work and, and, and sort of smuggle um, large amounts of uh, cannabis into the country. Uh, they said that we smuggled in um, a, a large amount and, and it got aborted in, the, allegedly got aborted in the Bristol Channel. But it was it was high-end criminal activities. Um, there was Bosnians in, Bosnia, people from Croatia involved. There were some Italians involved. Um, there were some Americans involved. And and, and, it, and this come out in the newspapers as well. Otherwise, I wouldn't be saying it. But some of the uh, shipping that was being used was also being used in South America for the for the cartel family. Apparently, they opened up a, a, a bank in the Cayman Islands where there was, uh, the, 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 you know, your American forces opened them up out there. Mm-hmm. And they was attracting all the money into this account, into these banks. Uh, they found copious amounts of cocaine, uh, but copious amounts, uh, a Moyet painting, millions and millions of pounds, and we was attached to it. We wasn't part of it. We was attached to it. And and we started to smuggle. They said the first one was 10 tonne, which was worth about 20 mil. Um, and, and then we got arrested uh, a year later at gunpoint for, for bringing in uh, five metric tonne of cannabis 
down in a place called in Devon. It come on, it come on by sea, um, and it, as it come in, they was there waiting. They arrested all the uh, fishermen uh, unloading it, and then I got arrested at gunpoint uh, about an hour later with uh, two of my co-defendants. Where are you at? You at home? No, no, I was a, I was in the vicinity of the uh, oh, of, okay. the, of, of the of the crime. Okay. And um, as we was driving away, the road was blocked. There was allergen lights. There was sixteen armed officers there. Uh, and night sites and uh, and because the guy who the, the, the company we was trading with was was high end you know it, it, right. tons and tons and tons and um, you know it's a very lucrative business uh, and, and and they swooped and and, and it, it was in about five different countries that people got arrested America uh, like I say uh, Holland um, uh, not Morocco Spain. Um, uh, uh, yeah, in Croatia, it was it was it was a massive organization. It was tons and tons and tons. Now, is this the point where you and your dad, y'all, actually went to prison together, right? Yeah, yeah, we we got nicked together. They wanted the old man badly. Uh, we was nicked with a Frenchman, um, a guy called Lemonnier, uh, who they said they tried to get. They wanted to. They said allegedly that they wanted to get him off the bus. So every time we went to court. Um, we were surrounded by armed officers, bulletproof vests on. It was, it was like as if we were sort of the IRA or something like that. <laughs> right. And um, and plus, they wanted my dad badly. They really wanted him. They thought he got away with it for far too long. Uh, you Google my dad, you won't find a lot about him. He was he was a very sort of cunning criminal. I suppose you're meant to be. He didn't want notoriety. He, he wouldn't be speaking on this show. Right. He, he wouldn't be writing books. He was a he was a, he was a real old school. Yeah, and we got nicked together. Um, with the fine, we got, we got, a, um, at one time we was doing 18 and a half years. The fine got sorted out. We got down to 12 and a half years, which for cannabis was a lot, but where we'd got away with it, I suppose, for, for, for a number of years, you know, it was, you, you can't do the time. Don't do the crime. You know? Right. So we was in a prison cell for two years to go. And, um, that, that, that was quite odd. Yeah. Wow. No, I mean, I agree with that. Absolutely what you were saying, but there, there's a story that I heard you tell where your dad was getting married. Where did you hear that? <laughs> and you, where did you, hear that? you, 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 you gave him crack. Was that it? Was oh, that what no, you, oh my God. Did I say that on a podcast? Yes, you did. <laughs> oh my good God. Well, it was out of order. <laughs> I would, I would say so. I was just a little bit I on his wedding day, for God's sake. That. I mean, I tried to keep a few things. What had happened was he he was getting married to his um, to his fourth wife, and my, as much as my my dad was a, 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 a smuggler, he he never to him it was a commodity. It could have been potatoes. It's just it was only money, right? And um, and so. He come back to the cell one day, and he was about sixty-five. The old man. He'd never had a smoke of cannabis or never taken a drug in his life. Drink, yeah. And um, that's a lie. He, he took it once before, and so he, he started having. He come in and he was stoned in the cell, and it sort of freaked me out a little bit. And it was. I said, "What have you done?" He was, he was all dry. He kept eating and that. And uh, he said, "Oh, you know the old boy down the landing." He said, "He's given me a smoke." 
And I got a little bit weird because he was he was a proper old Irish sort of. He's a funny man, my dad. He used to sing all them Irish rebel songs at the window, but but I was concerned. But I looked at him, and in the end, we started smoking. We started smoking cannabis together, and then one day he's getting married, and next door to us was these two armed robbers, and they used to look after our little bit of uh, puff, you know, our cannabis. So he went to me, you know, roll me a joint, son. And so I went in there, and they'd been on the crack the night before. These two kids. And on the side was was a pinhead. It was only a small bit, and I don't know what possessed me. But as I'm rolling him a joint, I put the crack in the joint, and he smoked it, and, and tongue stuck to the root of his mouth. Because I thought, what have I done? He was sweating like a lunatic, and then the chapel called him. Hey, man, he was getting married. He was sweating like a lunatic. Anyway, he walked into the governor's office. It was gone absolutely gone. His wife was there, his, his wife-to-be. And, and the governor said, well, what's the matter with you? I said, oh, he's a bit nervous, governor. But what would you mean he's nervous? I said, well, he's getting married. And his wife said, nervous? This is his fourth marriage. You shouldn't be nervous. And he kept looking out the corner of his mouth, swearing at me. He said, you wait. Anyway, after about 15 minutes, I put a cupcake in his mouth give him a cup of tea and he come round a little bit and, and, and he got married. It wasn't an ideal wedding to be honest with you. <laughs> man, I got it. When I heard that story, I laughed for about a good 20 minutes, man. I couldn't keep it. Again. I can't remember telling that one, but obviously I did. I'll tell you what podcast it was on because I'm a fan of his story as well. It was Sean Atwoods. Ah, Sean. Yeah. Ah. Oh, that's right. Sean. Yeah. Did you ever listen to James English? Uh, I think I did. That was one of them I was listening when I was doing some prep for your interview as well was James English. Yeah, 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 yeah. James. There's a, there's, there's a couple of good ones out there. Do you know him, Steve Gillum? Do you know Steve? Yes, I do. I've talked with Steve. I talked with him last week, in fact. Yeah, he's all right, Steve. They're all all right. They're all doing their bit. Yeah, yeah. Steve's killing it, man. Uh, matter of fact, we're supposed to get together and talk and have a conversation and and maybe try to work up something we can do together. He's he's killing it out there right now, man. He's doing it. We've interviewed a lot of the same people, me and Steve. Yeah, right. I've noticed that. Yeah, yeah. So I mean, I just I wanted to share that story with us because it, it it really cracked me up yeah, I know. when I heard yeah. it. But but to your point earlier, what you mentioned, you know you. When you search, when you try to find certain guys, guys that you know were in the game, but you can't find a lot about them, th- to me that speaks to how good they were at what they were doing. Absolutely, absolutely. Because if they didn't can, want, they didn't want the fame. Right. They wanted the money. Yeah. If you can find a rap sheet on this person, on that person, on this person, you know, it got arrested here, got arrested there. If you can find a, a you know a half mile long rap sheet, then obviously they weren't very good at what they no, were doing, <laughs> whatever whatever they were doing. Um, there's a, there's a show you know it was quite popular called The Sopranos, and the guy these two guys were having an argument, and one guy had spent like 20 years in prison, and he got out and he said, "Look here, you don't deserve no accolades." He said, "In my book, you get points for staying out of the can," and that's the truth. <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> I used to love that show. I tell you what, you're you're good, aren't you? You've got a good way about it. you're you're a good interviewer. Well, thank you. I appreciate it. I've interviewed quite a few people from The Sopranos as well. That's my favorite TV show of all time. Yeah, I love. I, love, I used to love it because I used to like the sense of humor in it as well. That's what I, I try to tell people, man. I'm like, you know, it might be a show centered around mobsters, but like deeply seated in there, it's almost like a dark comedy. 
And I don't yeah, even know absolutely. if it, yeah, I don't know if it was intended to be that way for the writing. The writing is brilliant. Um, it's absolutely brilliant. Absolutely. But I rewatch it a lot with my wife now because my wife is actually a, a high school counselor. So she's oh, okay. into a lot of the psychology that goes on between Melfi, the, the shrink, and, and then Tony. She's into a lot of that. So she'll watch it yeah. with me, and we just get a kick out of, you know, stuff they say in the show. And I think it's yeah, written yeah. for them to be kind of bumbling and, and you know, not, yeah. the, not the brightest bulbs. But it's just delivered so perfectly by all those guys. I don't know if we'll ever see a show quite like that, you know, at least for no. a, a long time. No, it was a very good show. I used to like it when he used to go and see the shrink. Mm-hmm. Because you know what? The reality is a lot of criminals, there, there's, a, there's a buzzword around at the moment about mental health issues, yeah? And it's always been hidden. Everyone was frightened of it. Yeah. But that exposed it. Yeah. Because I don't care who you are or what you are. There is This world is suffering. There is a lot of people under pressure here. But because of the pride and ego, no one wants to own it. Oh, I'm all right. I'm okay. We fix it with money, women, crime, work. And, and you know what? We're fixing our souls with everything that's wrong because what we put in comes out. Yeah. Yeah. So absolutely. I, I think to turn it around, do you know who I used to be intrigued by? Um, I was, um, sorry, I, I, I got very intrigued. When I was a young boy, I started reading. There was a book and it was uh, Maya Lansky's autobiography. Oh, yeah. And it was called Mogul of the Mob. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And funny enough, when I was reading it, he died. Yeah. Wow. As I was reading it. And I found him so interesting. Mm-hmm. I found he's, he, you know, the story about, uh, you know, Bugsy Siegel and, and, and Luciano. Uh, and then it went, you know, the uh, Vito Genovese. And then it went into the, into the Second World War. Now, when you look at that, and I, I, and I do believe it's true that, uh, that Luciano, when he was doing that lump of bird, and Mylansky, and they used the name Lucky to go on into Sicil- into to get, uh, what was his name, the um, Italian man um, Mussolini. Yeah, Mussolini. And, and, so, and it changed the world. It changes even the gambling. You know, we, we're in Las Vegas mm-hmm. when they went out there and found it uh, and a seagull. And now, to me, to me, you know, they built America. Yeah. That mob built America. It was built on that. And do you know what? They hate to admit it that the mafia helped America and us win the Second World War. A fact. Yeah. Absolutely. And yet it goes pushed under the under the mat. And there's another guy. His name's Chapman. And he, and he was a spy in the Second World War. And he was a friend, a very good friend of, 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 an, of, a, of an uncle of mine. Yeah. Now, because he wasn't blue blood, so a lot of them spies, they came from the blue blood, like the Iachilons of, of society. But Eddie Chapman, you should you should Google him and read about him. He's an incredible character. He got the Iron Cross from Hitler, uh, but he was a he was an English spy, and he helped he helped he helped the bombings and everything. Now, to me, it's so exciting his story. Uh, and when he come back to the UK, there was three of them, and he was one of them. But because they come, the other two come from sort of the IHLons of society, they've got a pension. Because he was a villain, Chapman, he got a payoff, yeah? And they just poo-pooed him off. And yet Chapman, what he'd done in the Second World War for England was unbelievable. It was fact. It was unbelievable. And you always find 
someone like me or we're like-minded people we're good characters we're clever we're we, you know we've we got good ways about us right you know but we're all always shunned away as the dirty part <clears throat> of society but let me tell you the things that go on in, in my experience in my experiences i'm not sort of saying crime's correct or i'm not judging it but you get a lot of bright clever people in the criminal fraternity, the, the, the echelons that I, I sort of got introduced. And I find them amazing. I find their minds amazing, their work ethics. They're very clever people. And yet we get shunned upon. But we're, we're, we're everywhere, us mob. Us criminals all pop up everywhere. <laughs> no, you're absolutely. I mean, you hit on that perfect, you know, bringing up Bugsy Siegel going out to Vegas and that was the mob's vision, you know, go out there to this town, build this, this gambling empire. And you look at what that turned into. You go to Vegas today. I mean, it's, it's completely different. I mean, you know, and even, even stepping back before it is what it is today, you know, once it started getting popular, that's when you had the whole casino movie. I don't know if you've seen the yeah. movie casino, which I actually yeah. just interviewed, uh, Oscar Goodman, who was oh, the lawyer. You? Yes, I interviewed Oscar Goodman. He was the lawyer to Meyer Lansky, uh, guys like Tony Spilatro, uh, that yeah. were that were involved in all of that mob stuff back then. Yeah. And he was later the mayor from 99 to 2011, I believe. I well, mean, who was the mayor? Was it Dewey? Uh, what's his name? Giuliani? He was a mayor, he was a mayor in the 40s in New York. Um, Dewey? Oh, I can't remember. Thomas Dewey? What was his name? Thomas Dewey? Who? Thomas that Dewey? Him, yeah. yeah. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. I mean, I found that I found that intriguing. What about him? Um, did you ever meet any of his sons, Mylanskis, uh, uh, that you spoke to? Any, did you ever met anyone? I have communicated with, I think it's his grandson via email. Right. And I'm trying right. to set up something to get him. I think Steve interviewed him. Steve Gillen. I think he interviewed him. Yeah. yeah Amazing I, yeah, I mean, just, you know, and for him not to be, you know, that's what gets lost is he wasn't full Italian. You know, the rules is to be a made guy and to be that you have to be full Italian. Well, Meyer Lansky was not, but he was so well respected and such yeah. a great mind with yeah. numbers and being able to be that visionary to put things together. He was a huge part of Vegas. I mean, Bugsy went out there and done a lot of the legwork, but a lot of that vision, I think, come from Meyer. And he was just so smart with his mind and the way he could process numbers and do stuff. Him, Luciano, Siegel together, Costello, those guys were just, you know, they all formed together at the right time. And like you said, whether people want to admit it or not, they shaped a lot of, you know, our country. They shaped Vegas. They came, you know, they helped win the war. You know, that was how, what helped Luciano get out of prison. They extradited him, but that helped him get yeah. out of prison. Absolutely. He was doing 60 years in Sing Sing, wasn't he? Yeah, and for like, what was it? It wasn't even nothing serious. It was like running a brothel and maybe yeah, taxes something like or that. something. It wasn't even nothing that, it wasn't like a murder charge or anything like that. It was what they could pin on him. It was it whatever they could, yeah. 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 I mean, yeah, it, yeah. And I found it very intriguing. I found it very intriguing. Even in the Second World War, you know, what, what they done in the Second World War, I just thought, oh my God. And it's history. You know, it's history and it, and it, and it's, it's, it's incredible. I mean, I found that book. If you ever get a chance to read it, it's, it's written by Yuri Dan. It's called The Mobile of the Mob. And I was intrigued from the moment I opened the page, mm -hmm. not because of the, the gangster side of it, because we all get attracted to that. Right. But I was, I was attracted to, because I think they formulate, they formed a, 
because of the master, what do they used to call them, Mustacho Pete's? So because mm-hmm. he was an Italian, uh, Luch, uh, like, uh, Milanski Lansky, and yeah. Siegel, Doc Stature, all that little mob, they had a, their own committee, didn't they? Mm-hmm. And I think it was mixture of Irish and, um, I mean, look at the numbers. Look at what was his name, Dutch Shorts. Yeah. He was another lunatic. Yeah. And, and how the numbers started. And he's, he, he's the numbers you are lottery today. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's exactly. That's what I've told people before. The numbers back then is the lottery today. It's just organized by who? The government to get their taste. Absolutely. Absolutely. <laughs> anyway, bless them away. <laughs> I mean, they, they had to come in and get their taste. If they see something going good, they're going to come in and get it. Uh, another story that I've heard you mention is, you know, I, I, it's funny. You're an old school gangster, but a lot of stuff that I'm wanting to bring up are funny stories. But you tell a story about you're somewhere where where you see a mouse, and it just kind of puts things in perspective yeah. for you. Tell our audience yeah. about that story because I found that funny as well. So, so the yin and yang of Michael. I was a trauma child. It was all stuff that went on. So I was a mixture of an opposite. I was either very fearful or very fearless, uh, and it used to be my yin and yang. Anyway, one day I was out in Morocco with uh, a, a, a very known, important London villain. And um, we was in this room and, and, and we was uh, sort of having some sort of cannabis deal, you know, a big deal. And, and, and the Moroccans don't like you to test the gear if you come highly recommended. But I'm an addict. So I wanted to join. And I could see it was good stuff. It was pollen. So, no, you don't have to try it. One guy was sitting there, he had an handgun. It was all crap. Uh, anyway, I take it. There's, there's this, this bit of smoke. And, and it was so strong. Oh, I blew my brains out. So I'm in this room and I've lost sort of my way a little bit. And they're all talking. And uh, I don't know if you've ever got high, but I was really high. Uh, and I felt uncomfortable. And, and I think they could sort of get, I was getting a little bit, you know, a bit itchy. And I was in this room and it was like a, it was like, do you know what a 50 pence piece is in the UK? Yeah. It's, it has about five or six sides. So it was like this room had all these sides and each side had a, a, an open window with, with no curtains on it. It had sort of some metal sort of railings there and, and the wind could blow through. So it's very pretty in there. And I'm sitting on this window ledge, right? And where I'm sitting, I've got my feet up on the side. Anyway, a little mouse come out from underneath the curtain. It was no bigger than a golf ball. And I've just got, wow, I've screamed. I've jumped off the thing and they've gone, oh, what's wrong? What's wrong? I said, there's a mouse. They went, what? I said, there's a mouse. They said, so if you walk. <laughs> like, you're a drug smuggler. You're the son of this man and you're frightened of mice. It was bizarre. But the ironic part of that story is this. That was about five months before I got arrested. And I'm not saying I'm not frightened of guns. I'm not saying that. But when I got arrested at gunpoint, the boy who was frightened of that mouse wasn't the boy that turned up that day. I did not give a shit, excuse my French. But it was weird, and I often think about that, why I was so frightened of this mouse. And I'm not saying I'm not frightened of guns at all, but I just didn't have no fear. I just didn't care. I thought, you know, it was a bizarre moment. But, yeah, I was petrified of the mice. They could not believe it. They could not. You're a drug smuggler. You're frightened of the mice. God damn. 
Look, I did feel a perk. Looking back now, why do you think that was? Why do you think something like a mice, you know, had you all up in arms, but then getting arrested with guns pointing in your face, you had no fear? Why do you think that is? <clears throat> well, because I've done a lot of uh, work on myself and um, I've, um, you know, I do a lot of work. I help. I help a lot of people nowadays. With you go to prisons trauma. and stuff too, right? You go to prisons and, and talk to people? Yeah, yeah. I was I go to prisons. I go to, I do a lot of, I do a lot of sort of talking in places. I've been doing it for years, uh, doing it for a number of years. And, 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 and because of my experience of trauma, you know, I was sexually abused when I was a young lad, you know, not to a high level of, of sort of, in, uh, you know, of abuse, but it wasn't nice. Yeah, I heard and about I that. I wasn't going to touch on it because I know that's a touchy subject for some people to talk about. But being that you brought it up, you know, that kind of did help kind of maybe set the tone of your, your mindset at, at an early age. Yeah. too. Yeah, it did. And where my mother was so lovely that at a very young age, you know, my, my, my experience of two different women, one was the abuser, and one was my mother, was, you know, it was an opposite. You know, and and I think that resonated. You know, I was I was very. You know, when I was a kid, I used to like fighting, and sometimes the man would or the, the strong kid would turn up, and sometimes the frightened child would used to turn up, uh, and and I think that was what I. You know, if you teach, I said it a number of times. If you teach a kid French when he's five, by nine he's fluent, right? So whatever we teach, that's why love's important. That's why kindness is important. And, and, and I honestly believe in the Bible, it says the ancestral sin. And I think that's, let's take the word sin away. Let's just take the word sin away. Let's talk about an hand-me-down trait, yeah? So my DNA, you know, my biological makeup. And I do believe we get affected by it because I've done things that my dad done, what my grandfather done, and I wasn't taught them. It resonated in here. That's why I'm a strong believer. I'm a really strong believer that we can change through love. Yeah. Now I was, I looked apart, you know, I had all the dialogue, you know, I, I had this sort of infamous dad, but I was really broken. I was really, really broken from a very young age. And I think as that developed in me, you know, that fear to the fearless was always, there was no equilibrium. You know, I was an addict. I'm an addict. Uh, and, and, you know, depending on if I if I had net well or I'd been dishonest. And I think fear used to really engulf me. But then on the next point, you, you know, I was a very trustworthy soldier in, in, in the criminal fraternities because they knew I was reliable. They knew I would do my job and they knew I wouldn't open my mouth. You know, I was a strong kid. Right. Uh, and yet the other part of me was, um, you know, was vulnerable, was frightened, and I'm not ashamed to admit it. But one thing I was never, ever frightened of was being in a cop station or, or anything like that. I was always a man about it, you know, never kiss and tell. But I just think that's what formulated in me. And I used to use things to change the way I felt. Uh, that's why I started drinking at a very young age. Uh, and, and I flunked at school. I couldn't concentrate at school. I had a lot of issues going on. Uh, and I believe that there was a hand-me-down uh, hand trait. The sexual abuse never helped. And I tell you what, my mother's love was so unconditional that it sort of, I don't know, it, it meshed into this madness. Uh, and, and I was very spoiled. My mum spoiled me rotten. Uh, 
because she could see out of all the children, I was the one who had the limp, if you know what I mean. So I think that just developed in me uh, as a man as I, as, I, as I got older. It's probably yeah. a lot to take in, too, because you've got almost the extreme opposites. You know, you've got this unconditional love from a mother, but these, you know, gangsterish ways from the father. It's probably like learning from two very different people uh, important life lessons, learning how to, you know, be a gangster, make money and survive in the street over here and then getting unconditional love and, and, you know, caring over here is probably the extreme opposites, but you're yeah. getting them all at one time at a young age. Yeah, very much so. I think, I think that was it. I think that's what, I think that had a lot to do with it. Yeah. You know, my mother was just incredible and my dad tried. I mean, he was a great dad growing up. He used to support me in my sports. He'd always be there, but you know, even then, I mean, we used to um, we used to run a football team when we moved to Surrey, and all the kids in the street, you know, and they were sort of middle class kids. Uh, we were rough and ready, and we we entered this league. It was under elevens. Um, we was all do- we was doing well in the league, uh, and there was a manager one day who said something to my dad at an under eleven game of football and my dad ran across the pitch and started fighting with him uh, and all the, and we got slung out of the league mm. and all of the kids in the street you know some of their dads were the police or or they were sort of civil servants and they did not understand that this behavior existed yeah right but it was really funny because and so that you know it was there it was fighting screaming and always in trouble i mean i see him have a fight in the swimming pool when the guard asked me to get out because I'd stayed in the swimming pool too long and my mates were schooled from there. He's had a fight. You know, I'd seen him do all these sorts of things. And and, and I, <laughs> I had a, a trial for a professional team. I weren't that, I weren't going to be a professional football player, but I had a trial for him. And it was intermediates. It was under 17s. And I was only about 12. And this goalkeeper, he was a big old lump, this kid. Uh, for 17, he had sideburns, hairy legs and all that. <laughs> and, and I got up for a corner. He'd been rude to my brother who was behind the pitch. And I said something to him. I got up for a corner and he went wallop and he elbowed me in the eye. And there's all these scouts from professional, you know, London clubs or whatever watching. And as I'm on the floor, I've got a big, big eye come out of me. And I've turned around and my dad's come running onto the pitch. I thought, oh, no. And he's walked up to the 17-year-old kid and, and cuffed him. That was the end of my football career. <laughs> <laughs> so you had to be careful of him, you know? Yeah, no, I get it 100%. Uh, at what point was it, was it during your prison stay or at what point was it when your fate kind of really started to, to take over <laughs> and, and lead you in a different path? I'll tell you what it was. I was, I was in my cell one day. And, and I was smoking this big joint. And there was a lifer who came down to my cell and he'd done, he'd done 22 years. And he'd done 20 years in recovery, yeah, a, a, a drug addict, uh, 20 years clean. And he said to me, Michael, he said, there's only one person you've got to get on within this prison. And I said, well, who's that? You know, thinking someone down the landing. He said, he's yourself. And when the door closed that night, it was a challenge that I knew that I didn't get on with Michael. And, and there was mental health issues there. There was a spiritual malady. And, and I just thought, I felt really uncomfortable. And I got really high that night. Uh, and I had a bit of a panic attack because I had this thing going around in my head. 
that I didn't get on with myself. And it was a it was a reality check. And I started to think about some of my behaviours. And you know, I was I was I was quite very unfaithful to to my wife with 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 women very close to us. I repeated the that I repeated the behaviour of the abuser to me. I wasn't I was abusing women, but not physically, but emotionally. Right. And, and I used to have affairs, and uh, they was always close to home, a little bit like the the abuse. And so all this confusion, and, and life goes so fast, you know, before you know it. And I remember being challenged. And what it was, I'd, I'd left my wife and three children then, uh, and I'd married another young lady, an Italian lady. We lived out in southern Spain together. There was an Italian restaurant that the family had, very well known. A lot of sort of criminal um, people used to eat in this restaurant. And she was a staunch Catholic. She was from Naples. And she was friends with the um, the Page Free Girl, Samantha Fox, who'd become a Christian at a church in Knightsbridge in London. So we'd done some, um, some charity work. Uh, we raised some money in the nick for the disabled kids. And we got Samantha Fox, who then was a celebrity because she was also a singer. She came down to the prison, which was very kind of her. And she was telling us about this, um, this thing called Alpha. Uh, it's an introduction. And I'm not religious. I'm definitely not religious. But I have a faith in something far greater than me. Right. And, and it is Jesus, to be honest with you. I've studied Jesus. And they all go, oh, Jesus. But when you study him, he was a proper tough guy, this guy. You know, he weren't a grass. He, 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 he never shot no one, and he was on the cross. He had two criminals next to him. Yep. And, and I won't go into the spiritual aspect of that or the religious aspect of that, but they all talk about spirituality. And, and, and so I've always thought about spirituality, and I used, to, I used to pray to get my cannabis home. God, please get this home, and I won't do it again. You know? I, I always had a faith, but I always thought God was a punishing God. And so when Sam came down and she'd been going to this church, you know, Daniela said, why don't you go in the church? And uh, my dad used to sit in the back. He was an old sort of, you know, like that mafia mob, how they believe in the church. He was like that, Brian. He had respect for the church. And he used to say, come along to the chapel. Anyway, I went along to the chapel, sat in there a few times. Daniela had mentioned, Samantha Fox had mentioned this church. And, um, and I invited them down. And um, they came in. There was about thirty guys in the in, in in the chapel, and and they started to have a singing song. And I, I, I don't know what I was looking for. I used to hate the word "born again Christian." I hated it. And um, and they said something happened in that room. It was it was very spectacular. And you know, sometimes I think, oh, why that? you know, that sort of face stuff and, 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 and do I believe? And, and then I'll just get reminded on, on that moment, something very special happened to me where I was sort of, uh, you know, diseased with myself, where I was uncomfortable, mm-hmm. where I couldn't find that inner peace. And, and I'm not a lunatic. I used to be. Um, but meeting this faith as much as people sort of want to ridicule it and, and give it stick, it, it was the most, it's made me sort of be more acceptable as a human being. It's made me more whole. It, everything that I used to look for in drink, drugs and money, I found in my faith. Yeah. 
And so something happened in that chapel that day which was quite spectacular. It wasn't hysterical, but there was a move of the spirit. And everyone in the room felt it. Not everyone believed in it, but my dirty soul got touched. Uh, and I, it, it's, been, it's been hard for me uh, following, the, following the journey of faith. Um, you know, I had a lot of wealth. Um, I, I, was a, 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 I was an addict. I, 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 I was unwell. Um, I, and I always had to have a fix. I was always looking for a fix. And, and, and that day, something happened to me, and I, and I gave me life to the Lord. Um, it was difficult. I was known in prisons and they thought he's doing it to get his parole. He's doing this, but I was so hurt and broken and, and it helped me. It, it touched me. And, and there was a course that is called Alpha, as I mentioned, this introduction to Christianity. It's not threatening. You haven't got a, you can go along to the course. If you don't like it, you can leave. You have a bit of dinner right. and, you know, churches. And we started it in prisons and it, and it went around the world, you know, it went around the world, this course, and it's helped a lot of inmates. And there's one inmate, I'll tell you a quick story. About five years ago, they asked me to talk at the Albert Hall. And before I went in there, there was about five or 6,000 people there. And before I went in there, there was a workshop in the church around the corner. You know, there's about four or 5,000 people go to the church I go to. Uh, and some, you know, some experienced people are in there. Too. It's a very good church. There's, there's the wealthy, there's the poor. There's the prostitute. There's the there's the there's the drug addict. There's it's there's all sorts. Bear Grylls, you know the famous. He's part of that church, uh, and you know, and he. I hope you don't mind me saying that, Bear. But um, so this call started, and I was oh sorry, and as I was doing this talk at the Albert Hall, so I went to a workshop prior to that, and there was this guy on stage. He was an African guy, and. Um, and what I noticed about him straight away was how shiny his trousers was. He had these mauve trousers on, and they'd been over over ironed. <laughs> and I was looking at his trousers. I don't know what made me say that. Anyway, I've looked up at him, and he starts to talk. Yeah, and this was his story. He, he it was a political coup in Uganda. It wasn't Idi Amin. It was after that, and he got sentenced to death. Yeah, he got he got the death sentence in Uganda. And I think he was on death row for 20 years. And one day he was looked out of his cell or something like that. And he see this course being advertised and he'd done the course. Yeah. And he gave his life to the faith. They they took him off of death row. Uh, They released him. And now he works again for the Ugandan government as the minister for prisons. And as he started to talk, you know, 20 years have elapsed since I started the course. I thought, my God, what I began, and I'm not taking any credit for it, I take it humbly, what I began saved that man's life. And it really spoke to me that I put something, I put, I've sown into this, this, this course, and there's a man there who, who, who had his life saved by it. And many men I've met on my walk have done Alpha in prisons, some very, very dangerous guys, some, some top-end top criminals. Uh, one of them's called Shane Taylor, and he was. They say he was the sixth most dangerous man in the prison system. Ah. And he, 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 you know, he'd do anything to to hurt you or maim you. And he's a lovely kid, he's a really nice guy. And and he done the calls, and you know, his friends. He's he's my friend, the Davis guy. I've just been out in Ireland with um 
with some kids that, who was uh, who was involved with the relig- religious wars. Their fathers was IRA or the UVA, or you know, it was a mixed bunch. You know, one shot in the arm, one shot in the leg, one taking heroin when he was twelve, and they're really messed up, and they're really hurt. And when you go in there going, God, this, Jesus, this, hallelujah, they don't listen to that. Mm -hmm. What they connect with is the Bible says that who's in us is greater than who's in the world. You know, we spin round a thousand miles an hour every second of the day. It don't go any faster. It don't go any slower. We're not flat. We're spinning around in space. There's no electricians up there when it gets dark in Australia and it's light in London, you know, we spin around the sun and the moon, a woman giving birth. They're the sort of things I think, my God, they're, they're miracles, you know? So something exists. Otherwise we wouldn't exist. Absolutely. My conclusion of that is faith in the cross. Now I'm not trying to convert anyone at all, you know, each to their own. But when I was out in Ireland with these guys and, and I took my other guy out there with me, a guy called Lucas, who was in the, um, he was in the Polish jails and they, they were run like the Russian style, uh, you know, they used to have sign language. Um, they were tough kids, you know, it was gang warfare, what they was doing. And, uh, but very, very, very violent. He done the alpha. And he now works with me. He's a young, he's about 38. Wow. So I went out to Ireland with him with his trouble torn kids, you know. It's quite sad. But then all of a sudden, to hear the likes of us speak the truth or what we perceive as the truth, it helps them because there's an identification in the madness, mm-hmm. in the criminal activity, in, in, the, in the abortion, in the drug abuse, in the violence. And, and, you know, these eyes have seen a lot. And everything I tell you is true. Everything I tell you is true. Um, and, and so I get a lot of job satisfaction out of it. But I think what happened in my life was when I came out of prison, yeah, I relapsed on drugs for a year. And I had all, you know, I, I owned, I don't know if you've ever heard of a group called Kasabian. They're a famous uh, English group. I was, I, I, I sort of invested into that. I had a flower business, supermarkets, I had a radio station. You know, I, I, had, I had everything that you think would make you happy. I had a beautiful home in London, uh, and I lost it all. And I, lo- and I lost it all. Uh, and when I lost it all, because it, not that I was still doing criminal activities, but I knew, I, I knew every top villain in London. Yeah, and so uh, they wanted a way out as well. So we started doing other businesses. You know, not crooked, straight. Right. But I think to get me out of it I feel I feel God took everything that I had away and I mean everything you know I wound up in my underpants I wound up from you know being a homeowner and and having a portfolio of properties I wound up homeless although I never went on the streets because of my family and things like that but it was a stark reminder it was it's how God really broke me uh, and and I had nothing And, and I had to really rely on the sort of love that, 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 that I know is real. And, and one another story of my faith, which you probably wouldn't hear in a church, you know, I had a man attack me one day um, and it, it, there was a knife involved. Uh, another 
half an inch, I'd have lost my eye. Uh, and it was a miracle I never. And I believe that that was the force of love that stopped that. People might find that weird. And another story was one day I, I was at South Kensington Tube Station and where I used to live, I could see my house that I used to own. And um, I had no money on me. No, no, I could have phoned up and got money, but I, I was just devastated. And I, and I said a prayer, please get me home. I needed five pounds, to, I needed four pounds 80 to get home. And I walked down South Kent Tube Station and it's really busy there normally. There was not one person there. I wasn't going to ask anybody. I was just, don't know what I was doing. And we have a thing called an Oyster card. Mm. And what they are, you, you can fill your Oyster card up to travel, so you have to put money in it. And I was just standing there. It was me, the ticket collector. I didn't know what I was doing, but I'd say, I said a prayer, get me home. And I had a noise on this machine. This is true. I had a noise on this Oyster card machine, and I needed £4.80 to get home. And I walked over to the machine. There was a noise on it, and £5 dropped out of it. And I thought, my God, where did that come from? And I sensed in my little voice in my head or whatever it is, it's not what you want, it's what you need. And and so I carry that message. I, I, I and I'm not I, listen. I'm not perfect. I make mistakes. Um, you know, I still want to scream at the t- at the parking Waldens <laughs> and, and and things like that. You know, I, I I've learned I've learned to be kind to myself. I've learned to love myself because I was full of shame. Uh, and and I and I share that message of hope. That's what I do. Well, and it sounds like in that message, you know, God kind of stripped you down. And then yeah. rebuilt you. He's real. Be- he's building me at the moment, but that's that's that's, that's true. Yeah, that's true. B- building you, and I think it's a constant build because, as you said, you know, nobody's perfect. Even if you, you know, you can have a strong faith, you can have a strong belief system, but everybody's going to fall short. I mean, <coughs> nobody in this life is perfect. Nobody ever will be perfect. Um, so those are the types of things that that we have to deal with. But I think when you said, you know, there was that moment when you got the the same feeling that you got from drugs or drinking or whatever that you got when you were involved in your faith. I think there's a certain time in everybody's life. If they get involved in faith, that is like that moment when you know that that's yeah. it, because you get that feeling that replaced the other stuff that gave you that's that feeling. True. Cause most that's people, very true. Yeah, when, when people are doing drugs, they want to get to that one period when the drugs hit and you get that high, that's what they're searching. Well, if they're drinking, they want to drink till they get to that feeling where it just, you know, it feels good. That's what they're searching for. And when you can get that through faith, that's the ultimate prize you're seeking. Amen. I agree with that. Absolutely. Well, um, tell us a little bit about your book because you know we we mentioned earlier in the in the story here in the interview that you had a book, Sons of the Father. Tell us when, a little bit about that when you can, where we can pick it up and when you started writing it. So th- that's it there, the Sins of the Fathers. So so one day it was um, I was in this church and I was listening to a wonderful guy called Sandy Miller. And he started talking about the ancestral sin. And as he started to talk about it, something resonated in me. I thought, wow, I get that about my grandfather and my dad. And it never left me. And I thought, wow, that's unbelievable that that it's biblical. So that always was in me about the sins of the forefathers. And then when I lost everything, I got approached um, to look at doing a movie. 
uh, about my life. And I, I'd always said no, because my dad said, we ain't doing anything like that. <laughs> and then they tried to couple it in with the faith. But so I didn't want to do a, a Christian story or a religious story. Mm-hmm. I've got some great stories. I can't reveal them here at the moment, but we'll speak again, you and I, one day. Um, and there's incredible stories about the smuggling. Yeah. So people like those stories. Mm-hmm. But what I wanted to do, well, I, I wanted to talk about the trauma kid as a third person and make a movie about it. So instead of the criminal going, yeah, I can kill him, I can do this, I wanted my auto ego to be in there to go, oh, hold on, I'm frightened of that, like the mouse, you know, like the guns and all that stuff, and sort of thread it through the story uh, and then tell all the great crime stories because they love all that, Mm -hmm. yeah. Um, Talk about the tragic things that went on. They love all them things. And what you read and what I tell you, the criminal activities, times it by 10, yeah? So that was the, that's what we went to do. Uh, and then Harper and Collins, which are uh, 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 big publishers here in America, in, in America and in the UK, Australia, they approached us and I, I said, yeah, come on, let's do it. So they, they I, I got introduced to a girl, Harriet Compton, who, whose father was a high judge, great girl, great lady. And we started to play with it and do it. And 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 we done it. We only, you know, all the stories were there. Uh, it took us about three or four months to write it. People take years to write it. But it's more like a Wikipedia. Mm-hmm. We've wrote it in a way that they people must think there's a lot more than this. So... You know we've done we've done well with it. Sadly, as we started, COVID came, mm-hmm. so a lot of the things that Harper and Collins had arranged for me, uh, America, Australia, and things like that, it was all cancelled. We didn't have a social media presence, so we had to build that up. So it was a bit tough, but we got through it, and you know it's done well. Um, you know we've been in the top best-selling a few times up in, on Amazon. Um, we've got about 5,000 into the prisons here in the UK, 5,000 books. Um, so it's, it's done well, but I think it's a sort of book that what I would like eventually for it to be, I'd like to run it through the charity so it's non-profit, yeah? Mm-hmm. And we'd like to feel, because Alpha's in the American jails, it's, we'd like to sort of put it around the world in the jails as a non-profit book. And I think it... Uh, I think it'll be a book, and this is not my ego talking, I think it'll be a book that'll have longevity in the prison systems for people looking for hope. Um, from it, we, you know, I, 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 I say this humbly, um, we're writing another crime book at the moment, but a proper crime book. Um, we're going to sort of, you know, play with a few things. And if we get a chance, we want to do a documentary in the prisons uh, we've opened a charity. Um, we're attached to a charity called Ashes to Gold, which is is in Belfast in in Ireland, and they 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 home the prisoner. They get the prisoner work. Um, so we're we're starting to build that here in the UK. So it's becoming a brand. Right. Yeah? So Sins of Fathers is is becoming a brand. And if I get a chance to make a Netflix series. You know, lots of people want to do it. Lots of books out there, but I just think that this is 
a very, very unusual story. The genre of it is there's nothing like it. People write Christian books or criminal books. I, I've done it, I don't know, um, and we've done it that way, but there's a lot more to come. Mm-hmm. And it's not about, don't get me wrong, it's good to earn money. I'm not against earning money at all because I from the, I came from, like you said, being rebuilt. I, I, I went into poverty. You know, I, I, looking at my house, which was worth a colossal amount of money, I'm talking about, you know, a few million quid or whatever it was worth. Mm. And um, I'm sitting there looking at it and I haven't got any money to get on the tube. Now, the contrast in that, in that is very dramatic. So there's got to be a story there. Right? Yeah. And, and I think the mental health issues today want to give hope, but they don't want to hear hope. Okay, in the name of Jesus. You know, I, I, I'm not against that, but they go, oh. Well, I think one thing to that point, people tend to resonate with someone telling them that they can make it and they can overcome it and they can come out on the other side of things when they're talking with someone that's been through it, right? I think so, you're absolutely right. So somebody in prison can resonate with you because you've yeah. done it. You've been to prison. Yeah. They can't resonate with somebody that's been to Harvard or, you know, that's got a law degree that's never done a day in jail because they don't know what it's like. They don't know the struggles that they face day in and day out. They don't know the mental prison that they're in, let alone the physical prison that they're in. Um, Amen to that, Toby. Because what you said a minute ago, giving that book into prisoners for hope, because a lot of times that's all you got. That's all you got. Mm. Amen. Absolutely. Absolutely. And as long as we don't make it religious, but listen, we got some fun stories to tell. Absolutely. I mean, I can't reveal them, but you, but we will speak again. We've got some fun stories to tell. I'll tell you a little story. I was in a shop buying a pair of shoes um, uh, about three years ago. Uh, my girlfriend, she was buying me a pair of shoes. I had no money. And uh, I went into these shoes, and I used to spend £2,000 on shoes. You know, crazy stuff. And uh, there was these two Indian girls, and uh, they were sitting there chatting. And they'd been watching. I don't know if you... Uh, know about the Hatton Garden robbery that hmm. uh, they, they they got through the war. It was only a few years ago, and um, they was talking about it. and And the sister said, "Oh, wasn't it exciting? I, I got so nervous because they they broke into a vault. It was in Hatton Garden where all the jewelry is in London, uh, and the hole was very small. But they managed to get through. It was over Easter, and they stole everything out of there." And there was an old, there was a, they were villains of about 70. It's a true story. And I knew them. Yeah, I knew some of them. So when she was talking to me, I was listening to her. And she said, oh, how exciting. I'd love to do that. And I turned and looked at her. And I started chatting to her. And I said, oh, I'm an ex-criminal. Her face changed. And she pulled back. And I, and I was interested to know why she found the Hatton Garden robbery, very interested. And when she was confronted, well, not confronted, when she was introduced to someone who was in that game, why she was so frightened, not frightened, but she was nervous. And she said, well, the reality of you is quite daunting to think that you've done things like that. She said, but on a screen, we get so excited to think, oh, I'd love to be there. It's it's that, it's non-reality that they find exciting. So that's what we want to do in our production, 
Yeah. yeah. We want to make it exciting to people, but give a profound message yeah. of hope, of deliverance. And that's what this book is all about. It's not, I mean, I'd love to sell loads of books and we're doing well with it, but it's, it's not about that. It, like I, I went to a, 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 a somewhere last night in, in Bournemouth and um, it was for a recovering addicts uh, meeting. There was about 100 people in there. And when you see the state of their teeth, uh, of their skin, how frightened they are. Oh. Now, that's where the message has to go. But I think you've got to be wise with the message. Right. And, and I think love is a verb to do. It's an action. No, I love you. Or, or Jesus loves you, and I, no doubt he does. But I think love is is how kind you are, how you treat people. And, and you can only be kind to people if you're kind to yourself, yeah? Absolutely. And I think heart language, I never knew about heart language. You know, I've got eight grandchildren, and God's used them to open my heart, yeah? Because I was just I was just broken. I, I, was, I was greedy, I was, I was sexual, I was controlling, all because of my own brokenness. And so I, I just think that I've got, a, I think that I've been blessed to have a good message. That's what I think. Well, you absolutely have a good message. We're going to put the link to that book in the show notes to this video, where if anybody is interested in going and kind of getting the full story on this, they can do so. Listen, man, I've, I can't tell you how much I've enjoyed this interview. I've had fun. We've been able to put some positive messages out there and you can't do that in every interview. That's something that much like your book, you, you have from one extreme to the next, but it all, you know, you can relate to it because you have the good, you have the bad, you have the ugly, then you have the positive ending and what you're trying to, you know, get your message across. And, and we wish you nothing but the best going forward, whether it's with a book deal, uh, another book deal, movie deal, whatever you got going on, man, I, I wish you nothing but the best. Oh, bless you. I'll tell you, what, I really enjoyed this. Well, thank you. I'm glad. And I, I've been looking forward to this all week, and I'm glad we could get it done. And like I said, I can't thank you enough for coming on the show. How will you put the link in? What link would you put for Amazon? Yeah, I'll, I'll put it for Amazon. Or whatever one you have. If you have a specific one you want me to use, I can no, use a specific perfect. one. Amazon. If you've got the link to Amazon, Sins of Fathers. I, I want to speak again with you one day. Absolutely. Yeah. I find you extremely interested, and I love the picture behind you. <laughs> Thank you. As Robert Bless De Niro you. from uh, Goodfellas. <laughs> Bless you, brother. Thanks, Colby. It's really enjoyed this, brother, yeah? No problem, man. I've enjoyed it myself. Ladies and gentlemen, I am Hollywood Wade. That was Michael Emmett, and unfortunately, we are out of time. Tune in next week for an all-new episode of Crime and Entertainment. Michael, we appreciate it, my friend. Bless you, brother. Bless you. you. Look after yourself. Absolutely. Same to you. Well, boy, oh boy, what a fantastic episode that was. Again, going across the pond for this guest. I'm really glad Michael could come and sit down on the show. I had a fantastic time doing this show. I tell you, I have a fantastic time doing all my shows. I really enjoy getting to speak to these guests and, you know, go through their life and, you know, figure out how they go from one point to another. I mean, like we said earlier in the opener, he was involved in drugs at a very early age, family business, so to speak, then turns that around is doing everything good. Now the right way, got his new book out there, sins of the fathers. I can't recommend this book enough for you people go out and pick that up. We have a link to it on our Facebook page and in the YouTube video of this particular episode. Please go pick that up. It's a fantastic read. I promise you, 
you guys will love it. Now, what you can do for me, that's what you can do for Michael is go pick up Sons of the Fathers. But what you can do for old Hollywood here, okay? You can run on over to YouTube if you haven't already. If you have, I certainly appreciate it. But if you haven't, run on over there. Throw us a like and a subscribe. We love when you guys comment, but we understand some people just like the content. They're not into all that. That's quite all right. Just please like and subscribe the YouTube channel. That helps us grow. That helps us get our stories and, and episodes out to other listeners. And we really, really appreciate that. Now, the same thing with the audio people. You know, if you're listening to us on Apple, give us five stars. Leave us a comment. Tell us how we're doing. If we anything we need to improve on, I'm open for criticism, people. I'm not above that. You tell old Hollywood what he needs to improve on. If we need to quit running my yap so much, I'll do that. If I need to talk a little more, if you enjoy me talking, I'll do that. I realize that people are not coming here to listen to me. They're coming here to listen to our wonderful guests that we have here on Crime and Entertainment. But please also, on the social media side of things, folks, like us on Facebook, like us and follow us over there. Also on the Instagram at crime, the letter N and entertainment. Give us a follow on there. We're trying to get that built up as well. Also on the TikTok at crime and entertainment. You can find us on there too. We put out clips each week. Gives you a little snippet of the interviews that we do here on the show each week. So you can kind of get a feel for the interview. Find out if it's something that you think you'll enjoy, which I'm sure it will. If you've been following us for a while, we try to put out great episodes for you people um, so I'm sure you will like all the episodes, but if you kind of want to get a little bit better feel for it, go check out the clips that we do. We put a lot of work into this stuff. We put a lot of work into the production of it. You know, there's a lot that you guys and gals don't see on the back end. that is very, very time consuming. Oh, Hollywood don't want to get in your pockets. He's not trying to extort you. You know, he's not trying to get a little piece of money off of you. He just wants you to like share and subscribe folks. That's all there is to it. Well, I am Hollywood Wade. That was Michael Emmett all the way from across the pond. And unfortunately, we are out of time. Tune in next week for an all new episode of Crime and Entertainment.